0: Welcome, listeners, to this bonus episode of the lift up, hosted by Tamara Crawford and myself, Vina Orden. Today, we are so lucky to have with us writer Gina Apostol. As you may know, we feature Gina's fourth novel, Insurrecto, on the lift up this month. Insurrecto was a finalist for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, long listed for the Dublin Impact International Prize, and named by Publishers Weekly, one of the 10 best books of 2018. Gina's third book, Gun Dealer's Daughter, won the 2013 Penn Open Book Award. Her first two novels, Bibliolepsy and The Revolution, According to Raimundo Mata, the U.S. edition will be available to readers in January 2021, both won the One Laya Prize, the Philippine National Book Award for the novel. Her essays and stories have appeared in the New York Times, Los Angeles Review of Books, Foreign Policy, Gettysburg Review, Massachusetts Review, and others. She lives in New York City and Western Massachusetts and grew up in Tacloban, Philippines. She teaches at the Fieldston School in New York City. Welcome Gina, and thanks so much for making time to chat with us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me. We are so happy to have you with us today, and we would like to start off our podcast today with something a little bit fun um, to help us and our listeners get to know you a little bit more by having a lightning round icebreaker. Um, So if you are okay, we have seven questions that we're just going to throw at you, and and if you're ready, I'll I'll start with the first one. Okay. So first question, what has been your go-to comfort food or drink during quarantine? Pandesal. Ah oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and for those of us who haven't had this yet, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> it, well, you know, it's um
2: it's 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 a breakfast food. I have it for breakfast and it makes me happy to um uh, wake up to pandesal my um, my nephew makes it in vermont and then my brother mails it to me um uh for his son so it's uh wow it's it's that great cuz i'm supporting my nephew um but of course my brother <laughs> my brother sends it in a package like $20 to send <laughs> so it's like twice the amount
1: of amount the amount <laughs> of bread Aww. anyway so. That is nice. That is amazing. That's really cool. Okay, second question: What is your favorite football or soccer league and team? Uh-oh. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a huge Barcelona fan. Yeah, you know.
2: In fact, uh, yesterday it was just pure. I don't know what it was. I mean, it was just pure, absolute, unadulterated joy. It was yeah.
0: messy being messy. To
2: watch the first game. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, it was just. It
1: was great. Cool. Okay. So Barcelona. <laughs> Barcelona. <team. laughs>
0: I didn't know that. I really thought it was going to be a Serie A team.
1: <laughs> uh, Serie A.
2: Well, yeah, I used to follow Serie A. Um, I used to follow AC Milan in the 90s. That was definitely the team. Um, but Serie A has been having... when they had the huge referee scandal... Two, they also had those huge kind of... I mean, it's racist in soccer. right? I mean, the mm-hmm. race, but they had very, very overt racist incidents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, remember Balotelli, yes. you know, you know Mario. So, um, you know, those kinds of things. And then it's very hard not to just follow Messi all yeah. the time. I agree. You know, <laughs> with the small time that you have, I'll just follow Messi. Yeah. 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 I follow Italia, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the national team. So, which is of course also not a good thing. <laughs> for a lot I
1: love uh, Italia. Have you adopted a team yet, Tam? have not adopted a team yet. I've been told <laughs> that you're supposed to adopt the team near you where you live.
0: Yeah. Oh, where are you?
1: Yeah, and I used to live in north um northeast uh-huh. London, so my team was supposed to be Arsenal. But then I've moved to Southeast London. So apparently the closest team to me is Crystal Palace. Um, But um, I like rugby a lot more, but I get excited when the World Cup is on. So then I really get into football then. um, And then during the rest of the year, I get into rugby (laughs) It seems to me that there's
2: a kind of class orientation yeah. in different places um, with with sports. So uh, football seems to have a, like a non-aristocratic thing in London. And then it's interesting in Ireland, for instance, where you would think that the Irish uh, would be for... Uh, for football, you know, against the uh, English rugby, but they love their rugby. And um, they love, of course, their Gaelic football. So it's kind of interesting class orientations with um, with sport.
1: Yeah, no, it is really, really interesting around class orientation. I was told the same thing when I moved here as well. I think um, that, you know, football is kind of like the working class game and you really get into it. And then with yeah. rugby, it was you know played in universities and university game yeah gentlemen's game so to speak Mm -hmm. um and then you throw cricket in and we can have a whole conversation about class (laughs) cool okay great (laughs) (laughs) i love this chat about sport um so the next question for you is if you could travel right now where's the first place you would go to
2: Okay, my my gut is to say Venice. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Venice and I'm very sad over, um, <clears throat> you know, well, actually, I'm very happy for Venetians that their streets are empty. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the toll on economics yeah. might be hard for them. Uh, but I'm a huge fan of that city. <laughs> um, the other thing is really my family is thinking of, of just having a reunion, going home. Uh, And that's kind of a nice idea also. Mm.
1: Um, But my gut (laughs) goes to (laughs) bed. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous city. So I totally understand. Cool. Okay. And the first thing you want to do when COVID is hopefully eradicated or brought under control? I would probably want to
2: go out into a nice restaurant. Um, the restaurant that i like is via carota i love that place too. Um, and have a drink there um, that i that we've been making here but having a drink in a restaurant <laughs> would be nice it's very bourgeois you know um they make
0: really good different kinds of negronis though so yeah their negronis are really good there and as
2: you know my daughter for instance was was saying uh, what should i she's going to go and be in my apartment for a while cuz no one's there um <clears throat> She's going to quarantine herself after her protest activities right? Um, in my apartment. So she was saying, so what should I do in the mm-hmm. village? I said, uh, go and get there. There might be pickup now at Via Carota. And then we were going through. <laughs> what what in the menu would you allow yourself to pick up? Because the thing about a good restaurant mm. like the Via Carota is that you want to eat it there because to take home their cache pepe, It's not going to be as good. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So we were going through the menu.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is there a view as to when they're starting to open up restaurants in New York? They've got a view that restaurants will open up here, I think, probably next month in July. Wow, that's yeah. early. With I know everybody is saying a lot of this is early. They're opening schools by um end of July, beginning of August. wow. wow. Um, oh, they're trying to open friends. restaurants and get a lot of restaurants are doing takeaway, but they're trying to get them to do outdoor seating. So yeah, there's a lot that we think is moving a little bit too fast. But how about New York? Are they what are their views?
0: I've heard that, um, so the uh, city council person, Corey Johnson, um, he was saying that right now they are trying to prepare for street closure, so more street closure, so that restaurants can actually open up into the street. Kind of like how Stone Street is, you know. Um, But I haven't heard officially uh, about that happening yet. Although I think um, the restaurants probably have a you know, like in an inkling because I I've seen like a lot more of the the takeout restaurants that close down starting to open up. So there must be some plan that maybe we don't know about.
1: So okay, cool. So hopefully you'll be able to get that lovely drink and the cacio e Pepe in the restaurant. <laughs> um, pretty soon. Okay. Best time of day for you and why? Morning, afternoon or evening?
2: Mm -hmm. I'm not really a morning person, but I like breakfast and I like waking up um, Mm -hmm. to a fresh day of work Yeah, Mm. in the summer (laughs) when I can write. So for me, that's really the best.
1: Cool. Very nice. And for the sixth question, what are you reading right now? Well, I'm reading a lot of different books right now. So
2: the most recent one is... um, something for my research for my novel so it's the Tinio Brigade it's all it's about the Ilocos region Um, nice yeah the Ilocos region Filipino American war stuff Uh, so that's something I started a while ago and then I didn't need it for my last novel so I didn't finish it and then now I'm thinking I need to do it so I'm reading that I'm reading a book by a Mexican called um, Sudden Death Okay, It's about mm-hmm. a match between the poet Quevedo and um, the artist Caravaggio, which is interesting. I thought I'd really like it because mm-hmm. the structure is really interesting and the weird historical stuff. But I find casual misogyny is just uh-huh. mm-hmm. something, you know, even in the modern day. And I don't know why that's not picked up.
1: But anyway... Mm-hmm. And if you weren't reading for research, what would you want to read next or even reread?
2: Well, I'm really, really envying my partner right now who, (laughs) when he's not working, he has decided to just pick up his uh, book of Borges Collected Fictions and just read from page one to the end. Wow. That's a very nice way to (laughs) spend the day. (laughs) You know, it's just all just... Collected. I've never read the collected fictions in one go. Um, So that's kind of nice. It's
0: a very interesting (laughs) summer reading project. I mean, my beach reads are not necessarily what one would think of as a beach read, so I totally get it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, my partner read, you know how I I read Ulysses with Uh a codigo, you know, a Filipino with codigo. You have a Uh book that explains Uh Ulysses (laughs) you He read Ulysses, well, he's Irish, but he, he read Ulysses like Oh, okay. Mm, that's funny. Yeah. You know, because it's for an Irishman, I think that's, um, huh. it's more like, that's my granddad or something.
0: Right, right. Yeah. That's impressive. That's really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thank you
1: for answering the lightning round questions. <laughs> cool. Uh-huh. I'm going to turn it over to Bina to ask the first question for the podcast.
0: So, I mean, we talked about this um, a a little bit in our outtakes, but it's it's such an interesting, really unprecedented time that we're living in. Um, You know, we're in the midst of this global pandemic and there are also all these mass demonstrations out on the street in support of Black Lives Matter um, and against rising fascism all around the world. Um, And you were a student activist during the uh, Marcos dictatorship. And so it's just interesting. And I I kind of wonder, are you seeing something in the protests um, that may signal a sea change either here in the U.S. or in the Philippines?
2: Well, I think what I think what I'm reading um, or what I'm hearing from people Mm. is that the numbers are incredible. Mm-hmm. In the United States, and so and the extension, the fact that it's um it's prolonged, yeah, and that people remain on the streets. So I think that's very good. I'm going to um go back to, you know the, the you know my own experience. So I was in mm-hmm. school in the '80s, early yeah. '80s. So you have to understand it's before 1986. So uh-huh. you're talking about kind of the the late years of marcos Mm -hmm. when you you'd gone through the first quarter storm you know and so for us Mm -hmm. first quarter storm is more historical and we're in this moment where marcos says okay i'm going to lift martial law and it's not really a real lifting so we're in that mode where the very Fierce student activists who began that work against the Marcus regime, they were all in prison, some of them were already oh. in government, etc. And so mm. now that I look back, we were still activists in the like slumping years of the Mar- martial law regime, when most people around us were not into it. You know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so there, so uni- the university was very, very um, activist in its portrayal of itself. You know, the university was already changing. It was already a very bourgeois mm-hmm. uh, kind of upper class university. So I'd be going off. I was an English major going to these marches. And I'd have friends saying, I don't know what, why you're doing that. You know, dress mm-hmm. the way you are, you know, because they were always commenting on the way I was dressed. You know, I was yeah. well dressed. Why do you think you should be uh, going against the system? It's like, what the fuck? That's so stupid. And I really am very clear about my class orientation mm-hmm. that I'm, I, I'm not a peasant. You know, I'm a kind of petty bourgeois, um, highly educated academic artist. And I'm very aware of my own kind of ambiguity, as a person that was Maoist and Marxist in orientation, so what happened was after the death of Minoyakino, right, right, it became a very different protest. Yeah, and I think this is where I'm kind of connecting to the current mass demonstrations. Right, right. Um, there was already a steady, organized, powerfully, ideologically coherent organization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm that I was part of, where everyone was calling us crazy or nutty or whatever it was that people thought. What's interesting for us to recognize is that there are groups that every day are doing the work. Right, right. Um, they're organized, they're coherent ideology, their study of um, class systems, um, political systems, they're very, very clear concept of structural issues. Mm-hmm. When the mass gets part, becomes part of it, I'm interested in seeing how that coherent organizing helps the movement and right. makes the movement work. Um, so I, that's why I like Malaya, you know, like, Malaya is one of those structural organizations. But I'm looking right now at Black Lives Matter and I'm thinking. Right, right the way they managed to turn their organizing, their protests, which are you know mass protests, but they managed to turn public perception um, to it's peaceful, we defund police means this, um, we're thinking about structure, et cetera, et cetera. I see their really beautiful possibility Because it seems that apart from the sudden growth of numbers, there is actually a thread, an organizational Mm -hmm. thread, a structural thread in Black Lives Matter. And these are disciplined people. Right, right. Those are disciplined people. The Black Visions Collective, I think, in Minneapolis, Mm -hmm. um, I've been following them because I gave them money. And they understand they've been studying policing for a long time. Right. So right. the minute this happens, they can they can present to the Minneapolis Council, et cetera, what it means to defund policing. You know, those kinds of things.
0: It's just such an interesting lesson, this idea that all of this may seem like it's suddenly happened, yeah. but it's actually mm-hmm. kind of like the the crest of a wave that's been coming. Yeah
2: for that's what organized um that's what organizing means and Mm -hmm. that's the effect of organizing the people who are actually lifelong or professional organizers there those are amazingly um smart people
1: Mm -hmm. cool no thanks for that i i definitely appreciate the connection and and you know your views on What's happening with Black Lives Matter and what you've seen in the Philippines as well? Amazing organization. I mean, I think Black Lives Matter, crazy good. And I echo your your thoughts as well. Like, I think for career organizers, you know, right. able to take all of that passion and turn it into tangible, actionable results. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you so- have to, and you
2: have to recognize how they're demonized, you yeah. know, when they're not yeah. at, when, when, it has not crested, they're demonized as like reds, they're demonized as like ideological, but they're actually uh, the ones that create, change you can't have change when you're just like randomly coming together it doesn't make any sense so we so whenever something is actually really working like Occupy for instance I think Occupy also had a really strong Mm -hmm. ideological thread that was part of very clear a very clear organizing history
1: yeah cool thank you so I'm going to turn the questions in towards Insurrecto. And uh, Vina and I had a long conversation about Interacto in terms of, you know, themes that we uh, got from the book, but also around history. And especially for me, you know, coming into the book with very little Philippine history as a knowledge base. What was important to me was around understanding um, how much of the Philippine history you needed to know to, 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 to read the book and understand the book. And, and we'll go into that a little bit later. But one of the questions I had for you around that was, you know, in in reading one of the interviews, you mentioned that ins, Insurrecto hits a spot where many are now aware of our harmful blindness in our understanding of our history, and we need to self-correct. And I was just wondering, you know, was there a point as you were going through your research for the book. And I understood it took you, I think, maybe 10 years to, to write this. Yeah, novel. my books, are, my books <laughs> took a very long time to yeah. it. They're very long. Um, yeah. You know, was there yeah. any point where you felt like, wow, there's just so much history that I don't know, um, mm-hmm. you know, as you were researching it that helped propel you and, and propel your intention within writing this book?
2: Yeah, I would say that almost all of my novels do come from that, you um, I mean, if I knew what my novels were about, I, be, I wouldn't be writing them. <laughs> so all of my novels come from a point of ignorance. Like, I, oh, my God, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And then I choose which ignorance I have, Um would, it, you know, really energizes me.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: For instance, the Sea for insurrector really came from my writing um, Raymundo Mata, which is my second published novel, mm-hmm. which is about the revolution against Spain. But in studying the Spanish war, the war against Spain, which I thought was the Philippine, was, which I thought was the Philippine revolution, meaning mm-hmm. I thought it included America. I realized it didn't include America. Mm-hmm. I, I realized that Um, Filipinos actually know, when they talk about the Philippine Revolution, they're talking about the war against Spain. Uh And in fact, um, uh, and and we don't know anything about the war against America.
1: Wow.
2: So, and I really had no, everything that I read about the war against America, I didn't know. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Um, I, I... the, in the Philippines, when you study uh, the American period, you really study the the post war, mm-hmm. um, uh, because the re- because the revolution against Spain takes up so much of that revolutionary thought, right. um, and then you study what Americans did and the American laws, and then Philippine independence. Um, you know, nineteen the nineteen thirties, you know, the Ostrox mission, and then the uh, independence after World War Two. 1946. So that vacuum, because I was also in the United States and dealing also with questions that Filipino Americans mm-hmm, had mm-hmm. about that relationship. So I think it's because I became an expat in the United States, that knowing about the war against the Americans became very kind of constantly relevant Yeah. in my being in New York, my being a Filipino in the United States, my reading of Filipino writers from the Philippines. I began to see so many ways in which that blindness to the American war actually was very productive for a novelist, you know, because mm-hmm. you could, what, what's going on? It made me keep wondering why.
0: Yeah. That was one of the things that um, when we were talking about the book, I had mm-hmm. mentioned to um, Tamara that I immigrated to New York in my teens. And so I did have a very um, short sliver of having to learn Philippine history, but we were never taught this war. It was never no, called yeah. that either. And um, and you're right. I mean, we learned a lot about our independence from Spain and that the Americans helped us. But then, of course, you know, like looking back as an adult, you also realize that that colonial system of education that we inherited from the Americans, of course, they're not going to be critical. It's a huge blind spot. It's a huge blind spot. And it's constantly... Mm -hmm. uh,
2: It creates a weird... um, just weird ways of doing art or weird ways of thinking that you go, wow, you kind of forgot about the fact that they actually, it was genocide. So it's a very successful propaganda move by the Americans. You can see how powerful it was, um, what they had done to the Filipinos. And I know they were trying to replicate that in Iraq, Um, but because it was very, I would say it's very successful that the Filipinos don't have memory.
0: Right. Uh, interesting. Uh, heartbreaking. But, uh and, and, you know, what was so interesting about this book, though, was that I feel like you created such sympathetic characters, but with different backgrounds, right? So then there's this character, Magsalin, who's the Filipino American translator. And then Kiara Brazi, who's interesting, ended up um, herself that she spent her childhood in the Philippines because her father was filming um, a movie there about Vietnam. And then both Chiara and Magsalin also create their own version of Hassiana Nacional, Kaz, the revolutionary um, heroine of Barangiga. Mm -hmm. And so by creating these um, layered, very sympathetic characters, what Kinds of larger um, ideas were you trying to explore, and and what do you hope that 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 you know readers internalize about these yeah. um, different characters and their multiple identities?
2: It's something that I've been trying. I think I think ultimately my prod one of one aspect of my project as a writer is kind of trying to articulate this Filipino way of being. It's hard to articulate the way Filipinos address the world because we are very open mm. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. this recognition that this multiplicity is just who we are mm-hmm. is so powerful to me the fact i mean i grew up with like three languages and it didn't really matter that i had those three languages and it's so unconscious for you mm. that you just have you're just this multiple person that you're always code switching you don't think uh-huh, about that uh-huh. right? mm-hmm. and now I'm doing the Tagalog thing now I'm doing the what I think I'm in Cebu and I'm going to be am I going to be Tagalog or or what I when I'm in Cebu and you're constantly in that mode of of a very fluid recognition of your multiplicity and you don't have angst about that And I think that is a survivor's mentality. I think it's the, I think it's the mentality of someone who's constantly on the edge of being killed. Hmm. I think about, for instance, you know, a restaurant worker I met when I was in Barcelona. First, she spoke to me in Spanish. And then I said to, Oh, are you Philip? I'm Filipino. And and so she starts speaking to me in Tagalog. And then she called on her fellow worker. Uh, and they start speaking to each other in um, Pangasinense because they no. were both from Pangasinan. Wow. Um, and then the boss talks to her and she speaks Catalan. Wow. So <laughs> um, And so you see the multiplicity uh-huh. right there. And I say, wow, um, that's amazing. You like speak five languages here. And she goes, and, her, you know, and this is, I mean, really it was very important for me uh, to recognize this. I'm this bourgeois lady going into a restaurant just being a tourist, you know, and eating her food. And I'm Filipino. And I have this like exoticizing of her um, because, wow, it's amazing. You're um, you're, you're speaking seven languages. And she looks at me and says, I wouldn't be able to work if I don't.
1: Mm. Wow. Mm. Mm -hmm, You know, mm -hmm. so I
2: I think the multiplicity of the Filipino uh, sense of self, which some will say, oh, that's colonial mentality. Oh, that's like someone who's constantly trying to move into that, Uh, the white world, or that we we really have to recognize how our mindset is actually, for me, a very healthy mindset, as long as we recognize that's what we're doing, you know. Mm -hmm. So in writing my novels, I'm always trying to figure out how to articulate that very hard to articulate aspect of the Filipino, that we exist kind of in, you know, the inters- the interstices of our multiple selves, you know, almost in translation in, in the gaps of translation. It's an aspect of our desire, our desire to live.
0: Yeah.
2: And it can often be seen as an aspect of damage, you know, because you're colonized, because you're this, because you're that, you know so the multiplicity of characterizations and the empathy that i have for all the different possible ways of being comes from my desire to speak to what i think is a very hard to speak um aspect of the filipino i call the filipinos uh hyper, mo- hyper modern, you know like super postmodern <laughs> you know um, or hyper or hyperhuman mm. Because the fact of humanity that the moment we learn language we become a multiple person mm, we're split mm-hmm. we're split from the self you know that's what I mean that's La, that's the Lacanian self you know just a, a basic psychoanalytic thing um, but the colonized experience of the Filipino. Um, for me, is simply a replication of a basis of our humanity, the split, the splitness of ourselves that arises, most clear in language, um, but it arises from having to be uh, a social being.
0: Yeah, and um, no, that's, that's so true, because even with language, like the way that you see things and the way that you think about things, that's, that's also formed by language. So it, it goes mm-hmm. beyond just the...
2: Actual so I think, yeah. for instance, for the Filipino, where you're already, where in order for you to move in your world and, and, and survive, be alive, you actually have to at least have two
1: languages. Hmm.
2: Yeah. Because to go to school, you have to do English. Right,
1: mm-hmm. right. Wow. No, that, all of this is very interesting (laughs) for me to hear, you know, sitting and, and, and listening to your perspectives on, you know, language and how the interplay of language and I guess your life, like, as you mentioned, just surviving, just being able to survive, could um,
2: and- I just um, just do some because I I think I said something there about English, for me the Filipino in the Philippines who doesn't speak in, who doesn't who speaks only English is a problem. The Filipino in America who speaks only English that mm-hmm. is I think there's something else going on there because mm-hmm. you are moving I think in a sense of translation in some way the empathy that one you re- that you need for yourself is even more powerful because. You're existing in translations and you don't even know the other language.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that perspective and for touching on that particular theme. There was another theme we we also wanted to call out, and that's around how a lot of the themes within the book revolve around women and the strength of women in their various mm-hmm. facets. And one of the things we were wondering was um, whether or not when you originally set out to write the book, did you know that you wanted women to be the focal point in your storytelling? Or did that structure kind of sort of make its way into the novel and it kind of grew from there? okay,
2: here's what was happening when I was writing Insurrecto.
1: I was actually writing the so-called bigger book. It was
2: supposed to be more of an epic book. It was called William McKinney's World.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And every time I got annoyed with that book, which is Masculine Voices, mm-hmm. I went and I, I went and did this other project, my recess project, yeah. which was Insurrecto. Um, and I wanted, and I liked the women voices in Insurrecto. Mm-hmm. And it, and of course, it's the book that I ended up finishing. I'm still working on um, William McKinney's World. So I really did watch women in that novel. I was very happy always to be with the women mm-hmm. um, voices in the novel because I had a hard time writing William McKinley's World, which is the revolution from the point of view of a spy for Americans and a Filipino revolutionary and their brothers. <laughs> so it's a very masculine uh, take on the revolution. I couldn't really imagine their lives. So what's interesting about Insurrecto in terms of the women is that it was very easy to imagine Kashana. yeah. All I did was think about my aunts, you know, they would all be going, fuck you. I'm not going to fuck you if you don't go to war. You know, stuff like that. Um, so and I know how how powerful <laughs> in my family anyway. I mean, women are very powerful in my family. They just run the world. So it's so easy for me to um, imagine a woman revolutionary.
1: No, thank you for these strong women characters. We really enjoyed <laughs> them. Um, I definitely really enjoyed seeing one, just Cassiana, and I guess her strength and the and the way she she speaks and the way she moves within, you know, within the novel and 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 kind of sort of getting everybody together and leading that revolution. Um, but also like the subtler points of strength that you have with all your different characters in different ways, um, mm-hmm, yeah. you know, that kind of came through as you got to know them. I really enjoyed that. So thank you for them.
0: Yeah, and Kessiana is just like so sarcastic, and you know the kind she's of sarcastic. like double double speak that she yeah, does with yeah. the American characters. She's yeah, so she's
2: like a triple language
0: it. lady. <laughs> yeah. She's a triple threat. <laughs> <friend. Yeah. laughs>
2: yeah.